Yeah, so we are on, uh, we're in Perkanayin of Shmona uh, Parkim. We are, in my version, it's in, at the Dalid. Uh, it's, it's somewhere uh, in the middle of the Perak, but I would say probably about a third in, something like that, uh, where it says, Ve'en mitnayanavi, right? Because previously he had been talking about how the Navi has to possess intellectual virtues and also uh, virtues of Midot, and the intellectual virtues are a prerequisite, <clears throat> but also most of the character virtues. He says, Rov, he says, he has to have Shiukol Ma'alota Sichriot, Verov Ma'alota Midot. Right? That's, that's what he said in the previous. Um, Previous section, so the most significant ones, and he defines basically that's the control of the uh, 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 that's the lack of interest in in the that the person is not addicted to money and that the person is not addicted to pleasure right that those two drives don't uh don't have control over the person because they are um because that's the two uh ways in which a you know a materialistically per- oriented person relates to the world either through acquiring physical things or gratifying instincts through the world, through the physical world. Uh, it has to do with the relationship to the physical world, either having to chase after the accumulation of goods or uh, chase after the experience of pleasure. But both of those have to do with how they're relating to the, uh, to the material world. And we talked about that basically when we talked about, um, when the Rambam talked about the different midot and the balancing of the midot and the, uh, uh, the middle path and the, um, you know, finding that, uh, uh, finding the balance and so on, that it has to do with the body and the relationship to the physical uh, that, that the person has. Um, so the, the Rambam is saying that those are the, the, the most significant ones, are the ones identified by Chazal, but, um, but he mentioned that the, uh, the deficiencies or the vices, they sometimes translate it as, are like mechitzot, those are... Uh, are uh, like dividers between the person and Hashem in their yidiyat Hashem. They're mechitzot rabot, right? And the and the clear the clear perception is the one that Moshe Rabbeinu had. So this these mechitzot, he doesn't really mention. Um, he doesn't mention the. Uh, uh, it's it's very interesting. He 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 takes it for granted that the person has to have the intellectual. Um, uh, the intellectual virtues in, in their entirety. But in Midot, he says they have to have most of them. And that's what he's going to expand on now. And he says, call the pechit, uh, the, all of these deficiencies, this is what he says in the previous part, all of these uh, deficiencies are, uh, are, are going to hold him back from his understanding of God, whether it's deficiencies in the intellect or deficiencies in the character. Okay, so now he gets to, and, and I think, I, think I, I can't remember what we talked about last time, it was too long ago for me, but uh, um, it's, I think I mentioned that, and, and I think we've mentioned before, that, the, that the, the point is that the person be oriented to reality as it is, 
and not have their perception of reality distorted, either limited by intellectual deficiency of some sort or distorted by character deficiency because those are two different things. And there's intellectual deficiencies that the person can't grasp the idea um, from, a pers- from the, uh, doesn't have the tools to grasp the idea clearly, doesn't have the, uh, doesn't have the mind for it, doesn't have the uh, reasoning, you know, capacity for reasoning or uh, the proper training or any of the elements that go into uh, intellectual grasping of the idea. But a person could be in the position to grasp an idea, but they're blocked from doing it because of a character deficiency, meaning because of a, an attachment to seeing the world a certain way that's distorted. You don't have to raise your hand, just unmute yourself and just to go ahead. Yeah. He needs to have, he needs to have all of, he needs to have perfected all of the mitos of sechliot, but the character traits he needs, I guess, most. So, can we take from that 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 a character that a deficiency in in one sechel is more it it's more uh, destructive in the way he sees the world and the accuracy that he sees the world than a and one of them just midota, meaning it's more destructive if he's not 100% attuned to all, have all his intelligence, his mindset in the right way, it's more destructive than if he's in 100% with his midot. Yeah, I think because it's a different... Um... It's a different element of the uh, of the of the process, so to speak. It's a different different uh, dimension because if a person's lacking the intellectual capacity, they simply won't be able to see the idea. It's like uh, it's like if you don't have if you don't have batteries in your radio, you're not going to be able to get any signal. It simply doesn't function. It's just not. Or it only gets AM stations and not FM. I mean, it just doesn't uh, have the capacity to perceive the um, perceive the signal to to grasp the idea. That's different than uh, when there's interference. See, you understand what I'm saying? Right. Interference is different than simply not having the capacity. Interference means you have the capacity, but there's something that's blocking you from actualizing it. Um, that's interfering. So without the capacity, in other words, the intellectual ability is more emphasized because that's, the capaci- that's what you have the capacity to know. Not everyone is going to have the capacity to know, either because they don't have the natural ability or because they haven't trained themselves and, and sharpened their abilities and developed their skills to be able to know and understand. And I mean, anybody can see that through... Uh, through uh, looking at the difference between what a kid can understand and what an adult can understand, right? So the ability to think abstractly, let's say, and grasp certain ideas develops, with, uh, develops together with the maturity of the, uh, of the individual, but at a certain point for most people stops because they don't continue um, or they don't have a systematic approach to continuing to develop those skills. School is supposed to do that to some extent, and maybe it does, but um, maybe it does. 
in a certain way, but it's not systematic. It's not geared towards, in a systematic way and an explicit way, uh, refining the way that we uh, think about things, you know, think about abstract ideas or, uh, or uh, reason logically or anything like that. I think it, it happens to a certain extent from education by nature, but it doesn't, it's like a person could sit and learn Gemara, let's say, I'm, I'm obviously not, I could use a, a sub, subject like math, I could use a subject like any, any subject in, in, uh, in, in the curriculum. I'm picking Gemara because it's something that involves a very rigorous type of logic, okay? And a lot of kids, a lot of kids have a lot of difficulty following it because of that. There's certain abstract that even when you learn not as in depth, you just learn on the surface. There's certain abs- there's abstraction. There's uh, subtle reasoning. There's logical moves that are going on there. So the reason I mention it is because a person will a person who learns Gemara and sticks with it will actually develop certain capacity for logical reasoning that they didn't have before just by learning a lot of Gemara because that's the way that the Gemara goes. So then they'll become somebody who, let's say, challenges assumptions or notices, notices the assumptions or the premises of an argument right away or where they could be challenged or uh, um, where there's a lack of, you know, of logical connection between a premise and a conclusion or whatever. They'll, they'll develop that because they're involved in learning Gemara, where that's a really big part of the process. But there's a difference between that person and somebody who, let's say, learns Sifra Higayon of the Ramchal or, or Melechet Higayon of the Rambam or whatever book is, you know, they choose, and they systematically develop those skills. Or a person, like, for instance, could... Um, I'm saying this from my own experience... Um, or a person could um, learn to read the Torah from a young age and have read it so much that they actually have an intuition for like what ta'amim should should be on a certain word or can't be on a certain word or how uh, how a word, where the accent on a word is supposed to go or wouldn't go or whatever, and they can't even explain why. But they just have an intuition for that, those structures. So over time, that will develop in a person. But, ex- but directly developing, without an, a systematic attempt to develop it, the person will never really um, become fully actualized in that. And think of Josh Four with the, the memory yeah, competitions. Yeah. Oh, who's that? I never heard of him. He's the founder of Safari. Oh. He wrote a he wrote like a best selling book maybe 10, 15 years ago called Moonwalking with Einstein. He was like a freelance journalist, like a secular Jewish guy from Connecticut, mm. Pennsylvania, lived with his parents, and he was a freelance journalist. And he just for the sake of a writing assignment, he wrote about a a national memory competition that they were holding near him and. People at the competition told him that he saw these like amazing feats that they were doing, these stuff that he thought were superhuman. And they all told him like it's it's really not we have normal memories, it's just things tricks that we've developed in the Yeah, world. there's all these mnemonic strategies, yeah. 
Right. So he spent like the next year working on it, and he came back the next year and won the competition. Wow, that's cool. He wrote, he wrote a book based on his like experiences. Oh, that's very um, very interesting. Yeah, it's actually a really good book, uh, Moonwalking with Einstein. Mm. Um, I have a follow up with that. So when it comes to let's say we're talking about one's intellectual capabilities and how he's able to develop them further and work on them. But at the same time, what we've mentioned in previous classes, that it's just the reality of the world that certain people are born with a capacity that's more than the average person. Mm-hmm. With Einstein, he just started with a capacity that most people don't start with. Seems like that, yeah. Um, in his case, for sure. Would we say the same thing when it comes to Midot, that there's certain people that are born with an abnormally wide ability to empathize and sympathize. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Rambam says, he says it. He says that. He says it in a few places. There's some people that have an incredibly difficult uh, midot that they are uh, born with and some have an inclination towards uh, better, uh, better midot, for sure. But I'll, I'll tell you something. Like I said last time, um, I think I said more or less, whatever you're dealt, whatever material you have, you're not actualizing it. So focusing on what the natural endowment is, is uh, not productive. Um, I always like to use an example from, I used to play the violin a long time ago. And uh, I had in the beginning a very cheap one because, you know, that's what you get when you're student in the beginning and uh, you know the sound wasn't so good so I was playing it and uh, it was squeaking a lot and it just didn't, didn't sound so good and so I said to the teacher and I'll never forget this I said to the teacher well you know this this violin is pretty stinky violin so you know that's why it has that squeaky it's very squeaky and it just the sound doesn't come out so good and the teacher said, um, Yitzchak Perlman could make that violin sound pretty good. Right? And the point is, what I learned from that is that, you know, obviously Yitzchak Perlman is also very gifted, but the point wasn't that. The point was that the skill with which you utilize what, what you're given is, is a bigger deal than uh, what you're given. And so if a person applies skill, there's a story about the Natsiv. I'm sure you know who the Natsiv is, right? So he, uh, he had a really hard time in school. He was not very matzliach in his uh, studies when he was younger to the point that his, his parents wanted to pull him out of yeshiva and just send him to be a businessman. They're like, you know, he just doesn't have a head for learning. He doesn't have a, He's just not... Uh, He's not going to make it, and he begged his parents to let him um, let him continue, and he just basically doubled and tripled his efforts until he became who he was. And he basically said, "Like I was not a naturally gifted student. I wasn't like one of those Eloy students that you know is a genius from a young age and is super successful. I really worked extremely hard." And from the extremely hard work, I got to where I am. So it's important, I think, to focus on the 
choice element that there is in the process instead of uh, what what the endowments are. Yeah. So you are, you, you, some people are given uh, a more intellect, less intellect, more artistic talent, less artistic talent, more um, whatever, better, you know, midot that are more malleable, less malleable. But at the end of the day, the effort that we put in is really the determining factor. And there's a lot more that you can go with effort than, uh, than you think. I think that's the, that's the main point. So, ואין מתנאי הנביא שיהיו אצלו כל המעלות המידות עד שלא יפחיתהו בחיתות. He says, it's not necessary for the Navi to have all of the ma'alot ha'midot. Not necessary. He doesn't have to have all the midot, which is interesting. The intellect, yes, he seems to have to have all of them, but not the, uh, not the midot. Now, we'll see why, I think. שערי שלמה המלך עליו השלום העיד עליו הכתוב בגבעון נראה השם על שלמה. Hashem spoke to Shlomo and Giv'on, which here the Rambam is taking as a nevu'ah. Uh, I don't know if that, in the Moran of Uchim, he kind of puts it in a different category. It's not so clear that he considered Shlomo and David to be nevi'im. Here he is. Um, but he had some deficiencies. Um, he had uh, a lot of instinctual desire, a high libido, because you see that he went after a lot of women. That Shlomo sinned in having too many wives, which indicates an overly strong libido. So again, he's saying that, uh, that David HaMelech identified himself as a Navi, and we found but he was a cruel person. Even though he only used it against the idolaters of and to kill the heretics. But he was kind to the Jewish people. But still, uh, we see that Hashem didn't let him build the Beit HaMikdash, because he killed too many people. Since you spilled a lot of blood before me, you're not going to build the Beit HaMikdash. Right? I think uh, Moshe would like this part, because he always, he's very interested in Eliyahu and, uh, and uh, Elisha and the difference between them. But here the Rambam actually says it very clearly, very explicitly, that he had anger. He had anger issues, like they say today. He had midat haragzanut. Um, even though he used it against the heretics and he was angry at them, but Hashem said to him, it's not right for him to, he's not, he's not ra'ui, he's not worthy of uh, leading others and being their uh, religious leader, basically, the Kohen, because he has too much zealotry, uh, and somebody who has zealotry like that will end up killing them and punishing them instead of helping them, okay? We also find that Shmuel was afraid of Shaul, and we find that Yaakov was afraid of Esav. These midot, now that's fascinating because, uh, you know, in both of those cases, uh, those latter cases, uh, we don't find that they're criticized for that. You know, in the case of Yaakov, 
But he was, but I mean, it was, it, that was why he wasn't able to build the Beit HaMikdash. So we knew that that was not a, right, in the Bishat Maaseh, so to speak, when he's doing it, there's never any indication that he's doing anything wrong except what he did with Bacheva. But then afterwards, it's like all of a sudden he can't build the Beit HaMikdash and, and it doesn't say why in Sefer Shmuel. It says why in Divrei Yamim. Right, right. Oh, I hear what you mean. Yeah, like lota lebima lota or like lota nifa cherev ala mizbeach. Like you're not supposed to, right? Um, yeah. Right. right, just like uh, not not using iron tools on the Mizbeach because iron tools are symbolic of violence. So he was symbolic of that, not that he actually had achzariyut in his personality. That's what you're saying, right? right? Shlomo, maybe we could see that, but even there, usually they learn Shlomo as, oh, he was politically ambitious and therefore he married all these women in order to uh, build an empire and make political alliances. It's not usually seen as... Uh, Deficiency of the character. It's a good point. Yeah, and also in the case of Yaakov and Shmuel, you see that like with Shmuel, in fact, Shmuel's afraid of being killed by Shaul and Hashem tells him, uh, tell Shaul that you're going to bring a korban and whatever, you know, make up a story. And uh, and we learn from that that, oh, you're, you know, that the, the lying was basically endorsed by Hashem when all the all the mefarshim say, "Oh, you see from this that rather than that Hashem acknowledged the possibility that Shaul could come and kill uh, kill Shmuel, and therefore told him to avoid it for Bikoch nefesh to tell the story." And we also see that Shmuel didn't rely on a miracle that Hashem would protect him. He instead can't, had to come up with some excuse. In the case of Yaakov, also okay. In the case of Yaakov, more you could see that uh, he his fear got out of hand. How do you see that? Because according to the Pshat, at least the way I, I think the Pshat is, he tried to run away. Because when he's moving his family over, uh, over the river, and then he's suppo- and, and he ends up wrestling with the Malach, um, he was trying to run away. All of a sudden he got up in the middle of the night and he started moving his family over to the other side of the... Uh, you know, trying to run away from the yeah, I mean, that's what the Rosh Bam says, and I really think that's the shot of it. I mean, that he, um, that he was thinking to run away, and the whole point of the wrestling with the Malach was to show him that he had to confront him. That question never occurred to him while he was his family. Yeah, he gets up in the middle of the night, he gets up and he starts moving them over. And then all of a sudden he's left alone in the process of moving stuff from one place to the other. And that's when he wrestles with the Malach. 
And I, the Rashabah, and it sounds like he's waking up in the middle of the night and, and, and having regrets and he wants to run away. And that's why the Malach comes to basically tell him, no, you have to, you have to go face Esav. I think that's the, the, the Rashbam says that, but I think that's really the, it's a, it's a good uh, reading of the story. To me, it's very, um, makes sense. Um, let me see, oh, I don't have a Tanakh here, one second. I'll just pull it up on my computer and see. I have so many tabs open on here. Oh my gosh. Let's see. Um, that's in Mishnah. Uh, yeah, so it says, Vayakom balaylao, vayikach et shtei nashav, et shtei shivchotav, et achad asari ladav, vayavur et mavar yabok, vayikachim vayavirem et anachal, vayavir et shalom, vayivater Yaakov levado, right? So what's going on there? Let me see if they have Rajabam on here on Sepharia, speaking of Sepharia, let's see. I assume it will. Um. Hmm. I don't see it. Maybe the Rashbam uh, uh, was insisted on his copyrights and he didn't get included in Zafaria. I don't see it on here, but I remember it, that it's definitely there. Oh, wait, oh, maybe I didn't scroll down far enough, that's all. That's what it happened, okay. Yeah. Yeah, see, he says, I know you, I didn't screen share, but I'm just reading it. Meaning, the reason why he was alone was because he moved everything else over except for himself. So he says. Right, that's, that's the Rashi. I think that's the shot of it. But anyway, so that one I get. Some of the other ones, uh, what you see from here is that, um, yeah, the, the, you see an interesting thing from here, I think which is that the Navi doesn't focus much on the individual spiritual imperfections of these characters, right? So we only really hear about Shlomo Melech's involvement with women because it caused him to allow Avodah Zarat to spring up and become established in Israel. And we only really hear about David Melech's exploits and things like that insofar as they affect the building of the Beit HaMikdash or insofar as they affect his, you know, uh, status as the king or whatever. And with Eliyahu Anavi, in terms of his being a, uh, a leader or not being a leader, uh, in terms of uh, Shmuel, in terms of the practical way in which he resolved his uh, dilemma of what to present to Shaul. So the Navi the, and the Tanakh in general isn't so concerned with getting into what were the spiritual challenges, so to speak, what were the developmental, um, what was the developmental process of Eliyahu Navi? What was his level? What, what, you know, what was Shlomo Melech struggling with in his personal uh, life? Those issues are not highlighted by the Navi very much, because it doesn't really show us that side of that side of Shlomo Melech, um, ha, you know, to what extent his. Um, 
his interest in women interfered with his Yidiyat Hashem. Did or didn't interfere, right? It's not focused on, on that. But he's, so the Rambam is like emphasizing it, which is interesting. He's kind of going to a, yeah, he's, he's pointing to something which maybe we could infer from the text, at least in most of these cases, but um, isn't really explicitly stated by the text because I can't think of any place where, um, like you, uh, exactly what you said uh, uh, about David Amelech, I would have thought that the whole thing about the murder versus the uh, Bet HaMikdash is really symbolic, not murder, killing versus Bet HaMikdash, it's symbolic. Just like we don't use iron tools because they symbolize war, David HaMelech symbolized war and, uh, and kibush and, and conquering and all these things. And therefore the Torah didn't want to associate, or Hashem didn't want to associate that with the Beit HaMikdash, which is supposed to be an entity that's above that. Right? So that's, that's more symbolic. But the way the Rambam is reading all these stories is that, no, actually David HaMelech had a, uh, was a violent guy. He channeled his, what made him great was that he channeled his violence to good. Just like what he's saying about Eliyahu. Eliyahu Navi was a person who was a, uh, who had a, a temper. He channeled it to, in the proper direction, but it was there. Okay? And so the, f- the fact that I'm trying to understand how we thread the line between the idea of something being here, like, criticized, but also being something we encourage in other places. Could it be just in general, as far as mitzvot are concerned and actions, that these were proper actions, but they just happened to be a blockage to a gate of nevoah? Meaning, I, I don't know, I can't recall exactly where I remember this, but I feel like there are certain sources in Mishneh Torah where he speaks about proper usage of like negative emotions and feelings mm-hmm. like cause and stuff like that and I have, to, I have to look it up but I feel like he specifically not that he praises it but he, he doesn't give it this like negative framework as these negative things meaning mm-hmm. the war against the well the question is like look you have somebody like Moshe Rabbeinu for example he also conducted a bunch of wars and captured the whole Transjordan with Og and uh, Sihon and killed uh, thousands and thousands of people, but he's never called uh, a cruel person. In other words, he's saying that there was something about David Melech that was, he had like a violent aspect to him, that it wasn't just the action, there was something about his character. And you could see in some of the stories, he does like, you know, he does punish the... Uh, the people in, a, in an aggressive way. He had an aggressive side to him, meaning if he had just addressed the situation as was necessary, the way the Rambam is reading it is the opposite of the way that I think you and I would have read it. In other words, we would have said, well, it's a matter of symbolism, but really everything he did was uh, kodesh. but it could be that he had a certain violent tendency. He channeled it to good, but at the end of the day, um, a person could have done those same actions without having a violent character, uh, an aggressive character, and it would have been better. That seems to be what he's saying. <laughs> Meaning it's not the action that he did, but it's the midah that he's focusing on here. Even he's not even saying that he did anything wrong. He's not saying that he did anything wrong. He's saying he had that character, and that was why 
Hashem didn't want him to build the Beit HaMikdash. It wasn't because of the actions, it was because of the character. Because after all, Moshe Rabbeinu killed a lot of people and he, had, he built the first, um, the Mishkan and gave the Torah, so uh, it, didn't, it didn't interfere with, um, with his ability to do that. So uh, he's, he's trying to infer that it wasn't the physical action, it was the, uh, it was the character. It's interesting. Because, yeah, you don't always read the stories that way. And these were mechitzot. And it says, Elo amidot v'kayotze b'nhen mechitzot b'n Hashem etbach v'im anavim. Umi sheish lo shtei midot o shalosh mehem bilti memutzaot kamo shebar perak arvid. Neemar bo shor Hashem etbach mechitzot shtei mechitzot o shalosh. Velo tarchi kayot chitzron k'tat amidot memaid b'mead v'gat hanavua. Shalachon v'zinu k'tat pchitot amidot yimnu hanavua legamrei. So he says, um, that, uh, that it shouldn't be a surprise that deficiency in Midot to a certain, will, will diminish the level of the Nevoah. He's saying it's, that's what it means, that uh, a Navi who has, one, who has one bad Midah will be called that he sees things through one Mechitza. And if he has two bad Midot, he sees it through two. And if he has three, he sees it through three, Right? He says, it shouldn't be a surprise because there are some midot that Chazal say completely block nevoah. So if there, could be, if there could be midot that completely block nevoah, so then certainly uh, there can be midot that diminish the level of the nevoah. It shouldn't be a, a surprise. For example, It's very famous. If a Navi gets angry, his nevoah disappears from him. In the famous case is Elisha. That he wasn't able to have prophecy until his, his anger was removed. Again, that's the very famous pasuk where he asks him to bring a musician so he can calm his nerves down and he can uh, he can calm himself down and have nevoah. Another famous one. We actually learned this one uh, in more depth in Israel when we were here together. Um, the worry and the upsetness of Yaakov Avinu, kol abload Yosef, Remember, we learned about that when we were learning that story, right? That he lost Ruach HaKodesh, until he learned that he was still alive. Uh, and it says that his spirit became alive. And the translator says, that the spirit of prophecy returned to Yaakov. That's why it says prophecy doesn't rest on somebody who is lazy or sad, rather only from a simcha. It actually says mitoch simcha shal mitzvah. But the idea is that, um, that uh, well, like we learned, Yaakov, that's, that's how we explained, uh, and I think it's the only real rational explanation, that that was what Yosef asked his brothers when he said, ha'oda vichai, right? Because it doesn't make any, it completely makes no sense that Yehuda would make an entire speech premised on the idea that he had to return Binyamin because the father would die, and then for the first question to be, when it would literally makes absolutely no sense why Yehuda would be willing to become a slave in exchange for Binyamin's freedom if their father wasn't alive in the physical sense. But the idea was, meaning has our father, is our father spiritually and intellectually alive, having gone through all of these, you know, all of these troubles over the past uh, decades, and um, and it does say, but that his spirit came back to life, and then he had a nivua again. So the sadness and anger can 
completely prevent a person from having nivuah. Now, what's the reason for that? I think we've explained it before many times, but it bears repeating since it's in the context here. Um, but I think we've talked about it many times that both ka'as and, uh, and atzevut, both sadness and anger, have the quality of a turning of the attention inwards. Um, in the case, it's a different reaction, meaning a person who's sad is turned inwards and withdraws from the reality around them. The person who is angry um, is responding to the refusal of reality to conform to their expectations or desires, wishes, or ambitions, or whatever. In both cases, the focus of the person's energy is on the self. And in one case, they respond by a kind of despondent giving up and receding into the self. And another one, they respond in a lashing out against the external reality for not catering to the self. But the basis in both is the center of the reaction is, uh, is on the self. The center of the focus is on the self. And so therefore, ka'as, um, anger, and sadness are two emotions. And we know a person who's extremely angry, you can't reason with them. And a person who's extremely sad, you can't reason with them. They're, they're, both, they're both states of mind where the ability to engage uh, a reality outside the emotional experience is impaired. A depressed person, they don't want to leave the house, they don't want to do anything, they don't want to interact with other people, they don't want to go to work, they don't want to whatever, because they're lost, they're wallowing in themselves and their own uh, feeling of dissatisfaction and they, and they completely are uh, uh, absorbed in it. And the angry person might turn their energies out, you know, outward, but the fact is that what's frustrating them is that the, world, the reality is not uh, catering to their, to their wishes. So um, in both cases, the self is at the center. And that's why these are two emotional states that it's impossible basically to have nivuah because nivuah requires simcha, or especially the way the Gemara has it in Masechet Shabbat, simcha shel mitzvah, means that the person's emotions, when a person is happy, they're actually looking outside of themselves. They're engaged in activities that are beyond themselves. And they're engaged, that's what the Simcha Shel Mitzvah is the ultimate example. The Gemara gives Simcha Shel Mitzvah. In fact, the, Ramba, the Rashi says there, because it says Simcha Shel Mitzvah, and it gives the example of Elisha playing the music to be able to have Nivuah. So, so Rashi is bothered, obviously, by the problem that... Um, that's not really a mitzvah to play music um, in that case. So what's the simcha shel mitzvah? Because he says it's a mitzvah to have the shekhinah rest on you. So since he wanted to have nevoah, that's a mitzvah. Meaning any time the person's energies are directed towards something desirable, desirable and good beyond themselves, that's when they have simcha. When a person, you know, that, and, and the ability to do that, that's, that's the state of mind. It's ivdu et Hashem b'simcha. Right? You can't serve God out of a state of anger or sadness because your energies are withdrawn from anything beyond yourself. Then you also can't learn and you can't understand and you can't advance. And therefore, those states of mind completely contradict the idea of nivoah. Whereas, let's say an addiction to pleasure or a sort of an aggressive streak or sadistic or violent or whatever or somewhat of a uh, a meekness or a fear, somebody who's a little bit afraid, more afraid than they should be. So that has to do with 
um, a little a distortion entering into their relationship with the external reality or with themselves, but it's not a complete undermining of the state of mind necessary for nivua. It's something where there could be a distortion, uh, such as uh, obvious example, um, atheist scientist who uh, is a serial uh, adulterer and has a million uh, girlfriends on the side and uh, is a party animal and says, and by the way, I determined that there's no God. Right? So that's an example of where um, we don't trust their ju- the judgment of a person like that because their intellect is impaired by what they want the world to be like. Now, there are certain problems they could work on where they might not be blinded by their character defect. But then there will be certain areas in which this distortion in their perception of what's really valuable or their you know, addiction to certain pleasures and, uh, and, their, and, and how that affects their, uh, their orientation to, to the world is going to seep in to their understanding and block them and be a mechitza. You know, so that's a, uh, in the case of Einstein, for all of his ma'alot, even in midot, and being, uh, you know, having, generally speaking, seemingly decent midot, um, and uh, being a humble person, still didn't want to recognize a creator and uh, fought against that idea. And that comes from not an intellectual deficiency on his part. And eventually he was, he did admit that, there was a big bang. He was he, he admitted it, but it was a resistance. But it came from a, a certain desire to believe that there's an absoluteness to the physical, and that it didn't come into be. And that can be something that the instinct tells you. Or there are many people who have a difficulty that God doesn't have emotion. Usually these people are, uh, you know, whatever. There, there are people that have a hard time with it. And why do they have a hard time with it? Because to them, emotional experience or emotion is of intrinsic value. And it's, an, it's, an intrin- it's a reality that even, the, even divine must partake of it because it's so significant. So uh, that's, I'm just giving, I'm throwing out random examples of where a person who is, uh, a person who attaches significance to certain things is going to, therefore, it's going to seep into their, um, their understanding of the world. Or a person, and, I, and I've mentioned this before, a person who is, uh, who, who believes that, um, Everything a person's understanding of God's providence can oftentimes be informed by what they want it to be, not by what it actually is. Uh, sorry, can you that last line? Can you say that again? I don't think I followed just the last line. A person, a, a, some a people who have a let's say they are very uh, a person who needs to believe that God runs the world a certain way. They, they, they have, a, for, for emotional reasons, they need to believe that providence looks a certain way or operates a certain way. Or, you know, for some people, that means that God has nothing to do with the world. That's what they would rather be. Uh, for some people, what caters to their emotions more is that God is involved in every little thing that happens in my life, and therefore I don't have to be afraid. 
Um, in both cases, the person's not actually approaching things with their mind, they're approaching it with their feelings. And so they're, if they're a very nervous person and a very uh, insecure person, so they might want to believe in a provident, God's providence that makes up for that. <laughs> or something like that. I'm, I'm just, uh, th- that's, uh, I don't mean to psychoanalyze every single person who has a certain view about, uh, about providence because it could come from all kinds of sources. I'm just saying that, it's, uh, that an individual who, is, um, who has certain character defects, it can definitely bias them towards certain intellectual perspectives. Right, and that's 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 what that's what the the Rambam is saying, especially. And so, when a when a person is, for example, attributes ascribes ultimate value to the physical, intrinsic value to the physical, so then they might also want to believe that the physical is eternal, or that emotions are eternal. That's why the like, Islamic world becomes filled with. The highest physical pleasures and yeah that's the ultimate it's not that the uh, right and that's the thing in their religion i think we talked about it not long ago i feel like we talked about it not long ago but basically in their religion the physical pleasures are really the good for man it's just that by denying by submitting to god and denying yourself those pleasures you're honoring god and therefore he gives you even more of that good because you were able to resist the temptation in this world, therefore you get to have even more of it in the next world. It's like the marshmallow test or something. You know, your ability to restrain yourself from gratification will bring you even more gratification. That's the good of it. Now, why will it bring you even more gratification? Because obviously the sophisticated person will get more gratification than the unsophisticated person. But the, but the common denominator is still that gratification is the goal. Okay. Uh, I was wondering if in that example is a little bit off topic. So, um, if is there a topic? Um, at the end of the day, you, you could see there's a common denominator in practice be amongst Orthodox Jews and not Muslims in that they're both denying, well, not denying physical gratification, but overindulging physical gratification, whether it's for our worldview that because we don't want to be led by our desires and have them in the driver's seat, if it's for them it's because they want more reward in the world to come, doesn't it practically result in the same kind of person in this world, even if his, his, his view of what's going to happen in the world to come changes? I don't think so, because if I see that the highest good is knowledge of God, so it's not just that I'm denying myself physical gratification, it's that I'm making my physical existence into a vehicle for, a, for something higher. And I'm ordering my life around uh, a goal of Yidiyat Hashem. So it's not just a negation of the, uh, of the physical. It's not just a denial of my self-pleasure um, in the hope that I'm going to receive a greater enjoyment. It's, uh, it's a utilizing and harnessing of that for a, for a higher purpose. So that's what halakha does. 
meaning if I have bachot before I eat or after I eat, or I have tefillah, I have all these different mitzvot and so on, they're meant to harness the physical and change, basically they transform the physical world, the physical existence of a person into an, an arena of, um, of, uh, of thought, basically. I mean, this was one of the things that Rabbi Salvechik talks about in Halachic Man and Halachic Mind, his two like, big philosophical works that he wrote. Even though sometimes his, his, you know, his approach to halacha is a very classical you know, Lithuanian approach and a very, you know, in that case, uh, very heavily Ashkenazi-leaning, uh, but that's not that important. What's important is that what he says is that the, the person who's living by halacha, and he talks about this idea of the goal being intellectual creativity and being nifuah and so on. He has that idea in there. But the, um, but the idea that it changes the way you look at a, what a meal is, that it's, it has brachot, it has berkat amazon, it has divrei Torah, it, become, it becomes a different experience. Everything that you do becomes an, an object of the mind and something which is related to your quest for understanding transforms everything that you do into something connected to that goal. So halakha, of course, makes you think about it differently. What is the Torah telling me about what eating is or what it should be? What is the Torah telling me about what marital relations is or should be or what a marriage relationship is or should be or what business is or should be or what a house is or should be? You know, uh, anything, what clothes are and what they should be. You know, so how they can be instrumental to my quest of knowledge of Hashem. In other words, all of those, every dimension of your life is now like an object of cognition and reflection and depth and, uh, and, and understanding. And that's a total, that, that only the halacha does. That's what the Rambam says in uh, one of his letters where he says that you can, uh, you can compare other religions to Judaism. He said, other religions to Judaism are like a mannequin to a real person. That from far away, the mannequin looks like a real person. But when you look closely, you realize that one is alive and the other one is just a plastic, you know. Or they didn't have plastic, whatever, whatever, he, uh, whatever he describes, you know, not, not real. And then the same thing, he says that, uh, that when a, on the surface, other religions, they have prohibitions and commands and rituals and this and that, and it looks the same. But then when you look up close, you realize that one is a system of chokhmah and that, that transforms a person's life. And the other one is just a bunch of taboos, either you know, prohibiting or commanding certain things, but there's no, it's not a system of... Uh, of a, a, a basically a science of how to understand human life and integrate it with a with the you know with a purpose. It's not nothing even remotely approaching that. So uh, so yeah, it's it's just it, it, it might they both involve a negation of pleasure to some extent. But one is in one that's part of an entire system and it's instrumental to a whole purpose and in the other one it's just a denial of pleasure for the sake of submission to God. And in the... Uh, and, uh, and that's why, you know, that's why we have, I, I think I've mentioned before, we have the, you know, Chazal recognize you can't describe Olam Abba, but what do they call it? Yeshiva Shel Mala. Right, so the idea of yeshiva shel mala is actually important because what it means is that they understood that 
what they were trying to convey is what is the purest intellectual, spiritual activity that a person does in this world? It's learning Torah. So we're going to call the Olam uh, Yeshiva Shel well, that doesn't mean that they think that there's, you know, chairs and a tables and uh, and all that in 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 Olam Haba. The idea is that that the activity, the the pure activity, intellectual activity, spiritual activity in this world is uh, is limud Torah. So that's what it's going to be in Olam Haba. Just like they say, Shabbat is main Olam Haba. A day where you're involved, where you're panui from, you're free from all of the distractions and all of the practical concerns and you're able to reflect on God. That's olam haba. It's me'en olam haba Shabbat. They tried to use these metaphors so that we understand what the olam haba really is without really being able to understand. But, you know, give us a mashal for it. You see the difference? And then, of course, you have the Christian idea, which is also about denial of pleasure, largely. Except that they come up with all kinds of creative ways to get around it. But, I mean, basically, that's their ideal. Their priests and nuns and so on are, especially in the Catholic, uh, Catholic tradition, are celibate and they live and, you know, they pray all day or whatever. That's the, um, they, you know, one of the, one of the famous saints, one of the doctors of the church, one of the famous saints like castrated himself because he didn't want to, he didn't want to uh, follow after his desires, you know. It's not normal, obviously. Um, and the, uh, and the same is true in, 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 in Islam, that they find a way to be able to gratify desires while simultaneously feeling that they are, uh, to a certain, you know, are denying themselves enough to make God happy with them. But, you know, like the Rambam said, the Yushalmi says, if a person abstains from... Uh, from pleasure in this world, God holds them accountable. Why, why, didn't, you, uh, why didn't you enjoy that? Because there's no benefit in not enjoying something. That's not the point. Okay, should we, should we do the last paragraph? So we, before we, uh, okay. V'kashir yadam Moshe Rabbeinu alav ha-shalom shelo nishara lo mechitzal shelo isirota. When Moshe Rabbeinu came to the understanding that there was no mechitza left that was blocking him, that he didn't remove nishlemubo, ma'alot ha-midot kulam va'amalot ha-sichliot kulam. And he had reached a level where both his midot and his sechel were fully uh, actualized. Since there was nothing holding him back from a full grasp of the ultimate truth, he wanted to know the truth of God's existence as it was. That's show me your glory. Since his mind is encased in a material uh, form, because he's a human. That's why Hashem's answer is a man cannot see me and live. The only thing blocking him from knowledge of God's truth was one bright mechitza, which is the, the human intellect 
that is not separate from material. So Hashem gave him a, an understanding that was beyond what he had before, even though it wasn't exactly what he wanted. Since he is physical, he wouldn't be able to have the ultimate thing that he wanted. It calls the true understanding seeing the face. Because when a person sees someone's face, he can distinguish him and he won't confuse him with anybody else. Even though you can identify somebody from the back, sometimes you confuse them with someone else. It's like we know. Or he, it really should be. That uh, understanding Hashem in truth is knowing God from the truth of his nature that which he doesn't share with anything else. Uh, until he has in his mind an idea of God that's totally distinct from any other kind of existence that he has in his mind, just like everything else, where we fully understand that it means it's distinct and clear in our mind. It's not possible for man to have this. Moshe Rabbeinu had a little bit under that. And that's what it means I saw is that I'm, you're going to see my back. Which he never wrote, but, he does that, but it ended up being the Moran Vuchim. And because the rabbis understood that it was, it was the perfection of the sechel and the midot that made a navi worthy of uh, understanding God and removed these mechitzot, that's why they would say about certain people who were very distinguished in their time, this person is worthy of having the Shekhinah rest upon them like Moshe Rabbeinu. And uh, it will not be hidden from you what the point is that they're comparing over there. They're saying the person was excellent in intellect. They're not saying that the person is actually on the level of Moshe Rabbeinu. They're saying that they had the same uh, excellence, they were, they were excellent in intellect and in character. Just so that we could read to the end and get the, the basic point. So what's the, what's the issue here? What's the problem? I think this is probably the part that is the most interesting, right? And the Rambam talks about it in a lot more detail in many places. He talks about it in the, in the Mishneh Torah in some more detail. And he talks about it in the Ma'an of Uchim in obviously even more uh, detailed in that, right? Because this is a key concept. Do you have any questions about it? What's, the, what's he saying here? What's the point? Okay, Moshe Rabbeinu wanted a certain level of understanding. It wasn't accessible to him, so he got a lesser level of understanding. One is called the panim, one is called the achor, one is called the face, one is called the back. Now, how do you, what's the difference between face and back? What's the mashal? According to the Rambam, what's the mashal? This is what? Mere understanding and unabated uh, you know, comprehension of something versus a, uh, like a general idea that's not the exact thing. Okay, so you're saying it's specific versus general. Yeah. 
I still, I still don't understand the main, uh, the main point. What, what does it mean? What does it mean that the only difference was that he was, he was, he was a human being? But we're talking about metaphysical concepts. The intellect is, is not bound by anything material. Right. The intellect isn't, but we don't, we don't have a pure intellect. We have a sechel sheino nivdat, which means that everything that we understand is always based in the physical. Even our, I think we talked about this before, we talked about it especially in the beginning of the Ma'an of Uchim, when we, when we learned the beginning of the Ma'an of Uchim, that all of our ideas and all of our metaphors, that's why we use metaphors so heavily, because we don't really have the ability to talk about, um, talk about purely abstract ideas. We will always invoke some kind of a metaphor. Even when we talk about thought, we'll talk about the flow of thought. We'll talk about the connection of ideas one to the other. We start using all kinds of physical metaphors to describe something that uh, is essentially metaphysical um, because we don't have the tools actually to, uh, to describe anything without using um, some kind of a reference to the physical world. And all of our understanding of, and all of our knowledge even all of our mathematics and all of our science, it's all rooted ultimately in an, understand, in, a, in an experience of the physical world. It might be removed many steps, abstracted many steps from it, but it's always rooted in it. And that's why we can't really have an understanding of pure metaphysics except as an inference from the physical. And I think this is what, this is what I think he's trying to say that if you see somebody, everyone's had the experience where they saw somebody from the, ba- the back that they thought it was A and it turned out to be B, right? Uh, they make fun of it in the movies a lot of times. Somebody's about to go run up to somebody and they think it's someone and they tap them and it's a totally different person when they turn around, but they were sure that it was you know, the person they were looking for. But it's happened to all of us that we saw somebody from the back. We thought it was so-and-so. It turned out to be somebody different, but we were convinced that it was so-and-so from the back, right? Why is that? Because you're make, the difference is, I, I think, the difference is inference versus perception. See, in other words, when you see someone's back, you're making an inference. You don't realize you're making an inference. It just seems like you're seeing features of the person that are, you know, that indicate who it is, that identify them. But actually you're making an inference. Oh, the hair of the person looks like them and the way of their, their gait, the way that they walk or the way they hold their body, the size of their body, the shape of their body. It must be that it's Bob. Obviously it's Bob. And then they turn around and it's, it's Jim. It's not Bob. Okay. Now up till then you were making an inference actually about what was on the other side of that person's body, meaning what, who actually it was. You made an inference. Now you might have a lot of points, so many points of evidence that, um, that you're a hundred percent convinced that it's Bob. Um, even if you're 99% convinced, um, and, uh, and a lot of times we'll operate with that level of inference, meaning you'll see somebody from the back and based on the context and so many other factors, you know who they are and you walk right up to them, you know who they are. But sometimes it could be wrong because it's still based on an inference. Now here, the, the suggestion isn't that Moshe Rabbeinu could have been wrong. The, that's, it's not an issue of right or wrong. The question is, how did he know God? So the way that a person knows a person, identifies a person, what, it's important to realize that what knowledge means um, in the, uh, is that the idea of something is distinct in your mind. 
Okay, having a distinct, being able to define something clearly and distinguish it from other things, that means knowing it. Okay, that's, that, that's what knowing something is. If I, if I ask you, here's a ridiculous thing. What does love mean? How does love differ from passion? How does it differ from friendship? How does it differ from, uh, how does it differ from liking somebody? How does it, you know, you would need to come up with a clear definition of love that distinguishes it, that explains all the examples of love that you would consider to be valid examples and would also identify it as something distinct from those other things I just mentioned that are similar, okay? You would have one definition that would distinguish it in your mind from others, okay? You could even do more simplistic things. What does it mean to take something? Ever think about that? I'm just giving it a random thing. You know, so I want to define that term. What does the word take mean? What does the word give mean? What does the word love mean? That take and give are more physical, so it's easier maybe. What is a chair? What is a table? Um, those are objects instead of actions. Objects, actions, feelings, okay? All of these things, um, how do I define them? Really, is, how do I know that a table with eight legs and a table with four legs are the same thing? understand, inevitably, Yediyat Hashem is going to come from understanding what things are? Um, he, the reason why he, st- he starts made with terms because he, he wants you to know, he, he, because he's, a, he's proceeding on the assumption that all of our understanding of God ultimately is going to be utilizing metaphor. And, in or, and metaphor is based on, first of all, first and foremost, and an understanding of what actually is. So if we don't understand what actually is, we can't understand what, what metaphor is being used. So when, you, when we went through the Morne Vuchim and we defined terms, we always started by first defining, he always starts by first defining what does the term mean when it's not a metaphor. Because that's how you build from your understanding of things as they are to what, you can, what it can be used for in terms of a metaphor to something beyond. So that's why I use the example here of the face versus the back. In other words, I'm trying to describe the situation because when you have in your when you are looking at somebody from the back, what does it really mean? What does that metaf- what does that mean? It means that you're making an inference, right? That's why I'm I'm, I'm just describing what their what their metaphor is. So when I look at something someone from the back I'm making an inference about what's on the other side, who they really are. So what he means is to know something the way you would say, define for me what is love. Define for me what is uh, a table. Define for me what is this. You can give a clear definition of that that excludes all other things and differentiates it from all other things. Okay? If I say what is God, you can't do it. Okay? What I can do is be able to infer the existence of God from all of his creation. That's what Hashem says to Moshe Rabbeinu in the same incident of I'm going to pass all of my goodness before you and I'm going to call out the name of Hashem. What does it mean? It means you will see the entirety of the creation and its order and design 
and perfection. And from that, you'll be able to see as an inference, the same way that you can infer from the back of a person who they are, you'll be able to infer from that my existence. Okay? <clears throat> yeah. In fact, if I'm not mistaken, even the Ramban in, in, in the parasha says the same. Everyone says to V means Bereshit because Vayar Elohim et tov meod. The to V, my goodness, is, is my creation. So from that, you'll be able to infer my existence and uh, what it was. In other words, from the totality of understanding, it will be a compelling uh, inference. It, uh, the inference will be overwhelming, overwhelmingly clear, but it won't be a definition. It won't be a definition, this is God, this is God's nature but that it is a distinct being that is ca- that caused uh, that is differentiated from all existence and that exists that you that that you'll know that he exists as differentiated you'll know that he what that differentiation is you won't know the same way from all of the clues of the back of the person you know that it's bob but, you, but without seeing the face, meaning you don't have the characteristic that defines Bob as Bob, which is, let's say, the face, that you immediately recognize, directly perceive Bob's identity, but you infer Bob's presence from the back. You infer his presence from, from, from the back. So that's, that's the, the metaphor, okay? That a totality of an understanding of the, of the creation would lead you to recognize the presence and existence of God as a distinct cause of all of this, but without giving you that final definition of to perceive what God is. You would see the necessity of inferring that there is a distinct cause. And that would be the ultimate knowledge of God that a person could have. Because usually we're caught in a realm of the physical where something in the physical, where, where, we, where we are, we're not able to see the totality of the picture and therefore we're still not clear. It's still not clear to us. Uh, the, we can make inferences, but it's still not clear to us with the level, of, the, the level at which Moshe Rabbeinu would, would, have been, uh, would have had that understanding. And so... Uh, that's the metaphor, really, meaning the highest level of knowledge of God that a person who is in a physical body and therefore cannot conceive of, in, of metaphysical entities separately and, define, and have a grasp of them separately from the physical, the highest level they can be at is to understand the totality of the picture of the physical so that it compels them compels their mind to acknowledge the existence, to infer the existence of an, a, 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 an entity beyond that. That none of these things is the ultimate reality. They point all to this reality beyond it. That's called vera'ita tachorai. So the attaining knowledge, it only strengthens the inference, but it never makes the, the face any clearer. 
Right, the face net you never get, but the ability to see, it's like if a person learns science and sees this is incredible, the, the, the laws of science are so perfectly calibrated, it's pointing you to a mind beyond, right? It's making you, it's compelling you to, to sense, but then you'll see other things and say, well, maybe, maybe it's not so clear, maybe there's other things that are not so ordered and not so... Uh, Oh, maybe it's caused by, it, it sounds like it's caused by, uh, uh, by uh, God, but, you know, sometimes somebody will drop uh, an object and mud will splatter, and then what, what, what splatters on the wall, it kind of looks like a face, and maybe that's, it's just an accident that, it's, uh, that, that it looks like that, you know, that looks like it was designed. But when a person sees the totality of everything ordered and, uh, and designed, and they see that there's no other way but to say that there's a, uh, there's a cause beyond it, that's a totally different experience. There's no more room for not inferring the next step. That's what it means. Meaning, when you come up behind Bob and you're 99% sure that it's him, or 90% or whatever, when, when Moshe Rabbeinu attained this certainty of 100% in perceiving God's necessity but without defining God. Because the defining of the identity is, is the step that only a metaphysical, even a malach doesn't have abs, real knowledge of God, obviously, but what they can have is they can have the knowledge of what a metaphysical entity is because they are a metaphysical entity. So meaning there is a level of knowledge of God that's accessible after death. That's why he says, as long as the intellect is encased in the physical, that's why it's limited by its tools that it's using. Once it upgrades its uh, uh, operating system, so to speak, you know, we use our, another metaphor, modern metaphor, right? Once the operating system is upgraded and you're not dependent on the physical anymore, so now you're, you're able to at least have a generic definition of a metaphysical, a perception of what is a metaphysical entity because you would be one. And then you would be able to have a further sense of what God's existence is, something more positive, but still without any kind of a... You wouldn't have the ultimate knowledge of God because ultimate knowledge of God is God. But, the, uh, but there's something that you would have after death that they're all alluding to. There's, there's something beyond that that we, we, would, we won't know until, uh, until that time. Something positive, as opposed to an inference-based... But what holds us back from the inferences and what the Rambam is saying here, what the, the main point of the parak, I think, is that what holds us back from even the, the level of knowledge of Moshe Rabbeinu, even the level of knowledge of Moshe Rabbeinu, it's still so far from we have, but what would hold us back from that is the either limitations in the intellect or limitations in character, meaning that we are not able to look at the world uh, as it is. We're not able to see... Uh, to see reality as it is because either our mind is not sufficiently developed or our character blocks us or distorts certain elements of the way we relate to the world and therefore we're not able to, uh, we're not able to see it for, for how it is. And, you know, anybody who's been... Uh, people who are... Um, people who believe God has emotions are, I mentioned it before, the Rambam is like very emphatic about how bad of an idea that is for many reasons. But the reason why that they have a hard time with that 
you know, they have a hard time getting over that is because emotions are so central to their life. So they have to believe that that's therefore central to the reality outside their life. Um, they, I have a couple of follow-up questions. I know Dan, I think Dan has to go, and I also feel like a little crying, but Uh-oh. I don't want to continue. Um, um, Dan, you got to sign off? Yeah, no, I have a few follow-ups that I don't think we can get into right now, but I'm going to okay. write it down. Specifically okay. what we were talking about the past two, three minutes. Uh, it's definitely sparking different questions, but but we can always follow up on the chat, and that maybe that will encourage people yeah. to join the to to, yeah. to listen to the to the discussion, you know, the recording when I put it in. That's a good idea. Yeah, that way when you put the make it sound like really uh, mysterious and um, and and that 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 way they'll be they'll be pulled in. All right. All right. Uh, All right have a good night. Thank you very much. My pleasure. Bye bye.